You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. The Baptist Bible Fellowship is a uh, group of churches and pastors that work together uh, for different things. And part of that is that they have a, a missions agency. And uh, the missions office of the BBF has had an emphasis over the last year or so called the Project 938. And they were encouraging churches to sort of set aside a special Sunday for that and a, uh, for the Project 938. And they targeted um, the first Sunday in October. And um, so we're a little late. Um, so uh, that I uh, got some information about that and been talking to some people about it. And, um, but it kind of, we were in the middle of a series then. And, and uh, so we showed this morning the documentary for Marjorie Browning. And I was talking to Haley uh, before the service. And she said, yeah, they showed that at my dad's church like a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, yeah, that's because um, a couple of weeks ago was a date when all of these churches kind of targeted on the same date, but we didn't do that. So um, we're, sometimes you're just late, you know? Um, you, ever, you ever been there? Some of you were there this morning. Um, some of you will be there tomorrow morning. But the Project 938 is based upon Matthew chapter 9 and verse 38. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 9 this morning. And as I was thinking about this message this week and kind of reading through a good portion of Matthew, chapter 9 is very interesting. Uh, We'll not take the time to read all of it. Uh, We're just going to read the last few verses of the chapter. But in in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus uh, heals a man who is uh, uh, crippled and can't walk. Jesus calls Matthew, uh, one of his disciples, to follow after him. Uh, Jesus interacts with uh, uh, the the Pharisees about fasting and gives some teaching regarding that. He's called by a man whose uh, daughter is sick uh, to come and heal his daughter. And while he's going, uh, he deals with a woman who had an issue of blood who just believed that if she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, she would be healed, and she was. Not only that, but Jesus forgave her, and then word came that the man's daughter had, had not, uh, wasn't sick but had died. Jesus went and raised her from the dead. Uh, there were blind men who were given sight. There was uh, a mute who was given the ability to speak when a demon was passed uh, or uh, thrown out of him, cast out of him. And so all of these things happen. And in Matthew chapter 9, I believe it's verse 34, after Jesus casts out this demon, the Pharisees say, well, he casts out Satan or the demons with the power of Satan. And so in Matthew chapter 9, we see a snapshot of the ministry of Jesus, but it really encapsulates what a lot of the ministry of Jesus is. As he's loving on people and he's healing, as he's proclaiming truths from God's word that are 
are a different interpretation. They're the same truths that the Old Testament contained, but man had thought of them in a different way, and so it begins to, to sound and be revolutionary. And then as, as the religious leaders look at what Jesus did and is doing, they begin to form resistance to him. They begin to say, well, what he's doing is not of God, but it's of Satan. And that's their justification ultimately for resisting him and ultimately for killing him. And it's in that context that we come to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35, where it says this, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered. Like sheep having no sheep, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so I wanna just look through this passage of scripture this morning at a couple of points that I think will have value to us. The first thing is I want us to look and see what Jesus saw. It says that Jesus traveled around to the cities and the villages, that he, that he taught in the synagogues, which is where the Jews would gather on Saturday uh, to, to, to learn of God, to read his word, to pray. And Jesus was teaching there. But he wasn't just limited to the, to the synagogues or the, what we would think of as the churches. He was every day in, in, in the town square and everywhere he could declaring the good news of God. That salvation was, was, was here. And he was healing. He was, he was helping people who were sick, who, who were struggling with disease. And then in verse number 30, 36, it says this, but when he saw the people, the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus saw the people. He saw the multitudes. There are 7.8 billion people on planet Earth. Matter of fact, they tell us that the population of Earth grows by two million people a week. Two million people a week that the population of the Earth grows by. And missions organizations estimate that half of the people on the planet have never heard the name of Jesus. The need in our world is great. I would submit to you that even in this country in which undoubtedly everybody's heard the name of Jesus, but probably not in the context that he can be their savior. He's more a punchline or a curse word. And Jesus looked and saw the people. 
And when he saw them, he was moved with compassion. It says that they were, they were weary. They were broken. They, they, that, that word weary literally means someone who faints from exhaustion. And I want to challenge us a little bit with this idea today. Because I think in our world in which we live, it's very, very easy to see people and see multitudes of people and not react with compassion. It's easy to react with a lot of other ideas, isn't it? For instance, I can sit at a red light on a corner and see someone who is begging for money in the shadow of a help wanted sign. And you know what I can think? Oh, I guess you do. I can see by the look on your faces, you know exactly what I'm thinking. And I'm not saying, listen, I'm not telling you that we ought to give all of our money to everybody we see. But we ought to be moved with compassion. We can look at people who have traveled to our borders and they are desperate for some kind of a new life. And we can look at them from a political lens or we can look at them as a group of people that ought to go somewhere else. And I'm not making a political statement about immigration. You, you want a political statement? I'll make this. It's a shame that our legislatures can't get their act together, that we could have some kind of a cohesive immigration situation in our country. That's my only political statement. I just don't think our, I, I, I didn't even plan on saying this now, probably make somebody mad. I just don't think it's really up to our president to make executive orders one way or the other ruling immigration, but that's my own political opinion. You could disagree with that, that's fine. I don't even care if you do. You're probably right. That's not the point, and it's not the point at all. Here's the point, are we moved with compassion? Or do we see those people as some kind of a problem to just be sent somewhere else? Because God, when he looked at this world, did not see people who had rebelled against him and who had rebelled against their creator and were not worth saving. Rather, when God looked at this world, he loved the multitudes so much so that he sent his son to die and be the sacrifice for us. Because when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. And when Jesus looked at the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. And as followers of Jesus, should we not be the same? I'm not saying you can't have political opinions. I'm not saying you can't look at society's ills and have opinions about how we ought to handle that. We all do, but we ought to be moved with compassion. We ought to have compassion for, for people being in that situation. 
Even people that would disagree with us. Even people that would be opposite of of us on so many issues and even spiritual things. We still ought to have compassion for them because Jesus died for them. God's desire is that the sacrifice of Christ would have maximum impact in this world and that people would be saved. And do we see people who are opposite of us politically, who are opposite of us in some other way, or do we see people whom God sent his son to die for? Do we have compassion on those people? Or do we see people who do or don't wear a mask or feel about a shot the way we feel? It's easy for us to fall into those traps. And I believe, I believe one of the things that we as Christians need to be doing and need to be leading is in the area of just compassion and seeing people and, and, and dealing with people in a, in a human and a compassionate level. It doesn't mean that we agree with everybody. It doesn't mean we accept everything that people say or do, but it, but it doesn't mean that we then condemn them because of that. That is not our job. And Jesus was moved with compassion. These people were faint and they were broken. They were weary. They were scattered as sheep with no shepherd. They were outside of the protection of the shepherd. We talked about this last week. We talked about the fact that we're a flock of God and we are to, uh, we're to be led by shepherds, but ultimately by the good shepherd, by Jesus Christ. Jesus talks about this extensively in John chapter 10, but he says this beginning in verse nine. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, will go in and out and find pasture. Now it's interesting here because Jesus describes himself throughout John chapter 10 as the good shepherd. But here in verse nine, he says, I'm the door. And yet historians tell us that that also was, was what oftentimes a shepherd would do. That they would have some kind of a sheepfold that was uh, maybe made of rocks oftentimes or maybe it used natural barriers of, of, of a canyon or, or rocks along with something that was built up and it would have a narrow opening and it was in that opening that the shepherd would sleep. With the flock protected inside, anybody that would have to go and get at the sheep would have to go through the shepherd. And so Jesus said, I'm the door. Anyone who enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. And then he says this, the thief does not uh, come except to steal, to kill, to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Listen, God's desire 
is to fill the sheepfold with sheep. God desires to see people who are, are, are dead in their trespasses and sins, who are, are in darkness and headed for eternal destruction, to come to life and to life in him. God desires to see men and women transformed. And I'll tell you, the greatest the greatest need in our world and the greatest hope for our world is not some political entity. It's not some vaccine. It's not any, it, it, it is Jesus Christ transforming men and women from darkness to light, from death to life, from hell to heaven. This is what God desires to do. And if you know Christ as your Savior, you've already received that grace. And you need to be a conduit of that grace to others. And God desires for us to see the multitude and be moved with compassion. He saw them as sheep that were scattered without a shepherd. And I want to encourage you to look like Jesus looks, to see like Jesus sees. Because if we're not careful, we can look at other people and we can see the enemy. Or we can see people that we be believe to be fools or believe to be deceived or believe to be working against what we're working at. But that's not what Jesus saw. Jesus saw people in need of the good shepherd. And he was moved with compassion, compassion. And we need to approach people in that way. Not only that, but he saw a harvest. He said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers in to his harvest. He saw the harvest. I think it's easy sometimes for us to look around at this world and think about maybe times past and say, well, you know, there, there was a time when our country gave more precedent to the things of God. There was a time when, when our country respected the Bible and Jesus and pastors and churches and, and maybe that was more true than it is now. But I'll tell you what's not more true is the harvest is great. The harvest is great. Listen, you don't have to look very far to find somebody who needs Jesus. And the laborers are few. And yet, God, I was thinking about this this week, that you live in exactly the right time, at exactly the right place. God knew you, who you would be and where you would be. And he's got a job for you to do. He wants us to be laborers in his harvest. John chapter four, verse number 35, Jesus said this. Do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest. 
I, I've alluded to this before. I'm not much of a grower or a harvester. But this past week, what happened and happens every fall. Have you noticed, I don't know how long you've lived in Colorado, but about this time of year, give or take, I don't know, a month, winter starts to roll in. Have you noticed that? With incredible regularity. And every year people are surprised. Now, Tuesday, I was in whiteout blizzard conditions going up over, uh, through Eisenhower Tunnel. Um, we came out of the tunnel, coming back down to Denver. It was snowing. By the time we got to Idaho Springs, there was a rainbow and the roads were dry. And I thought, oh, it's fall. And you know what's gonna happen, right? Maybe next week, maybe next month, but at some point, it's gonna snow in Denver. And people will lose their minds. And a whole city of people will forgot, have forgotten how to drive in the snow. Now, full disclosure, I was going up the other side of the tunnel before I went through, and I forgot how to drive in snow. Got my daughters with me. We're coming back from the mountains, feeling good. All of a sudden, woohoo! And I was like, whoa. Mmm, snow slick. <laughs> Who knew? I'm so surprised. And also this week, I was like, oh, man, I got to blow out sprinkler systems. It's, you know what the weatherman said? It's going to freeze. Who saw that coming in the fall? And then I was thinking yesterday, I was like, and now that I've got all the sprinkler systems blown out, all the swamp coolers prepped, and everything's ready for freezing, I'm like, you know what? I bet these leaves are going to fall off the trees. I'm probably going to have to rake them. I joke about that, right? The same thing happens every year. And you know what Jesus said? It's harvest time. It's harvest time. And we need to be about the harvest. Jesus saw the multitudes and then Jesus did a couple of things. We already talked about he was moved with compassion. One of my favorite stories is in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus Christ is having the final supper, the final Passover celebration with his disciples. And he's interacting with them in several ways, but in John chapter 13 and verse 15, he has washed the disciples' feet and he says this, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. Sent him. And then he says this in verse 17. If you know these things, what? Blessed are you if you do them. If Jesus looked out at the multitude and was moved with compassion, what should we do? 
If, if, if Jesus said that the harvest is great and, and that we need to pray for laborers, what should we do? You know what, Jesus, this is the very end of Matthew chapter 9. You know what Jesus immediately does in Matthew chapter 10? Sends his disciples out. If this is what Jesus does, what should we do? Jesus commanded, he said, pray. And I want to give you just a few things that we need to do. Number one, we need to pray. He said, therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He specifically said, we need to pray for laborers. We need to pray that God would raise up missionaries to go out to those two million people a week that are being added to this world, that they would go out to the, the billions of people who have never heard the name of Jesus. We need to pray that God would send missionaries. We need to pray that God would raise up pastors and teachers and people that would minister within the church. But I'm just gonna warn you. You start praying like that, God's gonna change your heart. And God may call some of you to be missionaries. But I'll just tell you how I'm praying. I'm praying that God will raise up some missionaries out of our church. God's done it in the past, and I'm praying that God will do it again. I think we have a generation of young people, and for some, maybe even older people, who are wondering what their next phase of life is. And, 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 and I'm praying that God will use some of you to, to be missionaries. And you know what God's doing in my heart as I make that prayer? God is, God is softening me about the need to spread the gospel. And God will do the same thing to you. But we need to pray. Sometimes we wonder, well, what's God's will for my life? You know, what should I be doing? How can I grow closer to God? What should I be praying about? Listen, Jesus specifically says it right here. Pray that God would send laborers into the harvest. Matter of fact, I would say, if that's not a regular prayer for you, you're not praying as Jesus would have you to pray. Based on Matthew 9, 38. And so there's a couple of things, just practical ways. One of the things is we put a poster out in the lobby and we're gonna keep it out there for at least a couple of months. It's got some QR codes on it. You can scan those on your phone. It's got little videos about different parts of the world, the needs that are there and, and how we can be praying for those. One of the things you can do is, is take, out, take your phone and, and set an alarm for 938. You can do AM or PM or both. And when that goes off, take a moment and pray according to Matthew 9.38 that God will send laborers into the harvest. So we need to pray. But we also need to be involved in labor. If you know these things, blessed are you if you 
do them. And God desires for all of us to be involved in the work of his ministry, to be involved in the work of harvest. It doesn't mean all of us are supposed to be missionaries, but it means all of us are supposed to be involved in the work. So let me give you just a couple of ways in which you can be involved. Number one, to be a witness. We talked about this last week that God gave the, the gifts of evangelism and, and of an evangelist. And there are certainly people who are gifted at winning souls. But all of us are called to be witnesses. In Acts chapter one and verse eight, Jesus is gathering his followers. He goes up on the mountain. He's died, risen again, and he's been with them now for several days. And he's, he's preparing to ascend back into heaven. And Jesus said this in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You should be witnesses to me. You will be my witnesses. Now, we've all, for most of us, probably our, our courtroom experience has more to do with TVs and movies than, than maybe actual courtroom experience. I've been in a courtroom a couple of times. It wasn't exactly like TV. But in the courtroom, right, a witness comes up and he sits in the witness box. And, and when he does, before he sits down, they usually have him raise his right hand and he, and he, and he swears to something. To do what? The truth. How much of the truth? The whole truth and nothing but? Of course, we all know that. I don't even know if they really do that. I think they do. But all a witness is obligated to do is tell the truth. Now, there are people who are expert witnesses, right? They're doctors or, or maybe engineers or some expert in the field that will testify about certain aspects. But oftentimes in, in, in courts, there are just witnesses, people who witnessed things, and they are to tell the truth. They're to tell what they know. They don't have to be experts on, on what they saw. They're just going to tell what they saw. They don't have to have any sort of uh, special knowledge or uh, they don't have to be good orators or be able to tell a nice story. They just tell what they know. And Jesus said, you are to be witnesses. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if there's been a time and a place in your life where you've asked God to forgive you of the wrong things you've done. The Bible says that Jesus is faithful to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that in Christ we are a new creation. And listen, my testimony might be a little bit different from yours, but my job is to be a witness of what God has done in my life. And if you know Christ as your savior, God has done something in your life and you can be a witness to that. 
You can talk about how God has saved you. You can talk about how God is working in your life to change you and to make you new. You say, well, preacher, I don't know if I know all the right words. Listen, a witness just has to tell the truth. A witness is only obligated to tell what they know. But Jesus said, you will be witnesses of me. And so we need to be witnesses. Not only that, but we can give. Romans chapter 10 and verse 14 says this, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Listen, we need to be supporting those who are going and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've mentioned this before, but over in this hallway, we've got pictures of different missionaries that we support. If you've never taken the time, you need to go there and, and look at those missionaries. I, I would encourage you, go look at one today. There's, there's a little blurb about what they're doing and where they're at. Man, just look at one each week and read it and pray for that missionary that week. When you're done, you can start over. We, back here at the Welcome Center, we put letters from our missionaries updating us on what they're doing. Man, we need to be praying for those missionaries. They are laboring, they are working. We've got, we've got missionaries that are ministering in countries where uh, if, if some of their activities are considered illegal. And they're putting themselves and their families in, in some danger, risking those things to be a witness for Jesus Christ. We've got missionaries who are ministering in, in for some of them, some difficult conditions. And we need to pray for them. We need to give towards that that God would expand their ministry. But it is our job to be a support. Man, one of the things that I appreciated about the documentary that we watched before the service this morning was the, the importance that uh, the sending church had for, for the missionary. For 55 years, this lady was a missionary in Brazil. And for 55 years, there was a church that supported her, not just financially, but encouraged her, prayed for her. Listen, we need to be a church that has a heart for missions. We need to be praying that God would raise up laborers in the harvest, and we need to be praying and supporting those laborers. And so we need to be witnesses. We need to, to give and pray, support those. And then finally, for some of you, God may call you to go. Listen, I just want to challenge you. Maybe you're here and you're a parent and God's going to call your child to be a missionary. And that's not something that, that you really want them to do. I understand that. 
Listen, if, if I could, I think I'd just buy the houses next door and across the street from me and have my children move in there. Maybe a block away. <laughs> Not sure. If it was up to my wife, they'd just, you know, they'd just stay right there in the house or move into the backyard or something. But I want my kids close. I still like them for the most part. They might watch this, so I should be nice. But man, more than anything, I want my kids to love Jesus and follow them, follow him. And if that leads them somewhere else, then you know what? That's where I want them to go. Man, I, I appreciate the fact that my mom always encouraged me in following after the things of God. Well, I'm the oldest son, and, and she was widowed when I was 18. And, you know, I went off to Bible college and worked right here in Colorado for a little while, but then I went from there to Delaware on the East Coast. And I appreciate that my mom always encouraged me to do whatever I felt like God was leading me to do. That she would say the most important thing is for you to follow after God. It's a great privilege to have her in our church and, and be able to, to see her on a weekly basis and, and be able to live in the same city. But I didn't always know that that's what God was going to lead, lead me to do. But man, I don't want my kids living in my basement away from God. I'd rather, live in, I'd rather them live halfway around the world following after God. And some of you, God's going to call you. And you're going to have to decide to surrender to him. And surrender is to give up completely. See, the problem is that a lot of times we decide, yeah, I, I want to give to God, but I, this is how I want it to look. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever God wants me to do as long as I can do this, that, or the other. That's not surrender. Those are conditions. That's not the way God works. Think about all the prerequisites that Jesus Christ puts on you to come to him for forgiveness. You know, you got to get good enough. You got to clean yourself up. You got to show a pattern of good behavior before God will ever forgive you. That's not how it works, right? All you have to do is in your sin and your desperation, turn to God and cry out to him. And in faith, he will deliver you from your sins. And that unreserved and unmerited grace that God bestows upon us, he asks for unreserved surrender to him. And so I just want to challenge you. I don't know what God is, is, is doing in your life. I don't know how God desires to use you, but I know this. We need to be witnesses. 
We need to give and support those who God calls to go. And for some, God is going to call us to go. And we need to be willing to follow after him. Jesus saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion. And he said, the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. Pray, therefore. He didn't say, so we can't do it. He said, pray. God will work. And in the next chapter, he sent his disciples out and sent them to go. Let's pray. Dear God, Lord, I don't know what you desire to do in men and women that are here this morning. For some, God, I believe you are calling them to serve you. Maybe, in, in, maybe to make drastic changes in their life. For some, maybe you're just calling them to serve right here at Belmar Church. Maybe you're calling us, God, to be more fervent and disciplined in prayer. Maybe you're calling us, God, to be courageous and be a witness to a friend or a family member, coworker or a neighbor. God, I pray today that you would help us to respond to your leading in our life. Lord, I pray that we would be at Belmar Church, a church that is focused on sharing the good news right here in Lakewood and around the world. We love you today. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.